Chapter 10 Mercantilism and Freedom in England from the Tudors to the Civil War. 1. Tudor and Stuart Absolutism. Dominant in English political thought from the early 16th to the early 17th century was a form of simplistic and militant absolutist thought that has been called the correspondence theory or the political theory of order. This royalist doctrine was fashioned for the Tudor-Stuart age, in which the king struggled to establish his absolute power as against the international influence of the old religion, Catholicism, and over the Calvinist Puritans, who had definite republican and populist tendencies. In contrast, God was now supposed to be speaking through the English king, and therefore through the head of the Anglican Church. The basic philosophic groundwork was the natural order, the great chain of being, which since the Middle Ages had been seen as strictly hierarchical, with God at the head and man as the highest of his material creatures. But then came the fundamental methodology, flimsy analogy or argument by correspondence, just as God was sovereign and superior to various ranks of angels, and finally to man, and then other inferior earthly creatures in the macrocosm, so in the individual microcosm within each person the head must be sovereign over the body, and reason and will dominant over the appetites. Similarly, the father is sovereign over his family, more specifically and pointedly in the political realm, the king, the father of his people, must be sovereign over the body politic. This flimsy organicist analogy was pushed to great lengths. The head in the human body was the king in the body politic. Health in the former constituted social well-being in the latter, the circulation of the blood was the same as circulation of money. Rule of the rational soul was royal sovereignty, and so on. The only argument was correspondence, that the governmental and social ranking alleged to exist in the heavenly sphere must be duplicated in earthly government and in social life. One problem with the argument from correspondence is that freedom of the human will enters into politics and social life, but does not do so elsewhere. It is rare for the liver to rebel against the head, and yet an important conclusion of this royalist political philosophy was that political rebellion is as evil and anti-natural as such rebellion by the liver. Similarly, individual subjects must obey the divinely appointed monarch, else the divine order collapses into anarchy and disorder, and corruption and decay then rule in human life. While the liver has not often rebelled against the head, the royal absolutists did, of course, have an analogy to fall back on in heavenly government. Satan's wicked rebellion against the sovereignty of God. Similarly, the great fact of human history was Adam's fall, brought on by rebelliousness against divine authority and by overweening self-pride. God and the King, Satan, Adam, and Rebellious Subjects, 
These were the analogies and correspondences that the royal absolutists tried to drive home. Thus Anglican Church homilies on obedience in 1547 and 1570 called obedience to the sovereign the very root of all virtues, while a wicked boldness is the source of all sin and misery. As the homilies stated, all sins possible to be committed against God or man be contained in rebellion, which turns all good order upside down. It is the absolute duty of all inferiors always and only to obey, just as the body obeys the soul and as the universe obeys God. In stark contrast to the scholastics, as well as to Calvinist or Leaguer monarchomach thinkers, the Anglican preachers of order stressed time and again that the subjects must obey the king in any and all circumstances, whether or not the king or his actions were good or evil. There must be no resistance whatever, even to evil princes. The king is the divinely mandated representative of God on earth by hereditary right. To question, much less to disobey the king, therefore, was not only treason, but blasphemy. Disobeying the king is disobeying God. As the influential Mirror for Magistrates, which went through many editions from 1559 to 1587, maintained, God ordains all magistrates. Therefore, God ordains good when he favoreth the people, and evil when he will punish them. In short, good kings are a blessing sent to the people by God. Wicked kings are a punishment equally sent by the divinity. In either case, the duty of the subject is absolute obedience to God's and the king's commands. And therefore, whosoever rebelleth against any ruler, either good or bad, rebelleth against God, and shall be sure of a wretched end. To the royalist thinkers, the rising claims of individual freedom and the natural rights of each individual only led to mischief and destruction of God's rational order. Thus Richard Hooker, circa 1554 to 1600, the leading Anglican theologian of the 16th century, in his famous Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, 1594 to 1597, lashed out at any notion of individualism. Though himself a moderate on royal absolutism, Hooker wrote that the idea of every man his own commander shaketh universally the fabric of government, tendeth to anarchy and mere confusion, dissolveth families, dissipateth colleges, corporations, armies, overthroweth kingdoms, churches, and whatsoever is now through the providence of God by authority and power upheld. One of the most extreme royal absolutists in the Tudor-Stuart era was Edward Forsett, circa 1553 to 1630, a playwright, owner of the manor of Tyburn, a justice of the peace, and member of parliament. Forsett's magnum opus was A Comparative Discourse of the Bodies Natural and Politic, 1606, whose very title reeks of the argument by correspondence and the political philosophy of order. 
At some points, Forsett came close to saying that a monarch could never harm his people. In other words, however evil his deeds may seem, they must really be good, virtually by definition. Indeed, at one point, Forsett came close to the justification of a king's acts by mystery and power, as in the book of Job. Thus, as Professor Greenleaf puts it in his discussion of Forsett's doctrine, the seemingly evil acts of a ruler were only an appearance, the real nature of which was misconstrued by the fallible minds of the citizens. The strong implication, of course, is that the mind of the monarch, in contrast to that of the lowly citizen, is infallible. Probably the most intelligent and surely the most influential of the absolutist order theorists in 17th century England was Sir Robert Filmer, 1588-1653. Towards the end of his life, this obscure Kentish nobleman published a series of royal absolutist essays in the late 1640s and early 1650s. Then, three decades later, a Filmer revival took place, his collected essays being published in 1679, and his most famous work, Patriarcha, or The Natural Power of Kings, written in the late 1630s or early 1640s, was printed for the first time the following year. Filmer immediately and posthumously became the leading defender of royal absolutism from the older perspective of order theory. Filmer angrily rejected the idea that by law of nature all men are born free as heathen doctrine. Linking individualism and self-direction to sinful rebellion against God, Filmer warned against the very desire for freedom which caused Adam's fall from grace. Most notable in Filmer was his searching critique of the rising contractarian doctrine, which laid the foundation of, and therefore justified, the state in some original social contract. Thomas Hobbes, 1588-1679, had spent all his life in service as a tutor, companion, and intellectual guide to the Cavendishes, who were related to the royal Stuart family. Hobbes had worked out a contractarian justification for royal absolutism during the 1640s. Filmer spotted crucial flaws in Hobbes' social contract theory, which were to apply just as fully to John Locke's libertarian version four decades later. Filmer asked how likely it was that all men would agree to a contract, as was necessary before it could become universally binding. He wanted to know how and why a contract should bind all subsequent generations. He suggested it was unreasonable to invoke the specious notion of tacit consent. Filmer also trenchantly criticized the growing classical liberal idea of grounding government in the consent of the governed. Governments, he pointed out, could not then be stable, for governments could sometimes find that consent to be withdrawn. Once concede the power of the people to consent, as well as the natural law of equal freedom from subjection, and the logical consequence must be anarchism. 
For then every petty company hath a right to make a kingdom by itself, and not only every city, but every village, and every family, nay, every particular man, a liberty to choose himself to be his own king, if he please. And he were a madman that, being by nature free, would choose any man but himself to be his own governor. Thus to avoid the having but of one king of the whole world, we shall run into a liberty of having as many kings as there be men in the world, which upon the matter is to have no king at all, but to leave all men to their natural liberty. It should be noted that Filmer and other absolutists of the era found great inspiration in the French theorist Jean Baudin, who has been called the political writer most favorably and most often cited in England during the first half of the 17th century. 2. Sir Thomas Smith, Mercantilist for Sound Money the honor, if that be the proper term, of being the first English mercantilist writer should have gone for four centuries to Sir Thomas Smith the Elder, 1513 to 1577. Instead, his remarkable work, A Discourse on the Commonwealth of this Realm of England, written in 1549 and published anonymously in 1581, was at first unidentified, and since its 1893 reprint has been incorrectly attributed to another Tudor official, John Hales, died 1571. Thomas Smith was born into a poor family of small shepherds in the county of Essex. Impoverished but brilliant, Smith managed to enter Cambridge, where his scholarly abilities were soon recognized. There he rose to become Regis Professor of Civil Law, and then Vice-Chancellor of the University. Smith was a notable orator, and a learned and brilliant polymath, who wrote books on Greek pronunciation and English spelling, and was deeply interested in mathematics, chemistry, linguistics, and history. Smith embarked on a career as politician and bureaucrat by becoming a secretary under the protectorate of Lord Somerset from 1547 to 1549. Though an Anglican, Smith was a moderate who cared little for religious matters, so he was able to serve as privy councillor under Catholic Queen Mary on the recommendation of his old Cambridge colleague, the Catholic Bishop Stephen Gardiner. Under Queen Elizabeth, his influence continued through the powerful position at court of his old Cambridge student, Sir William Cecil, later Lord Burghley. Smith, however, was often out of power, a fate helped by his arrogant, boorish, and feisty personality. Thomas Smith was a bitter critic of debasement, and he therefore became a vocal opponent of his mentor, Lord Somerset's policy of repeated debasement in order to acquire increased revenue for the crown. Sent into exile from the court in 1549, Smith brooded, and then did what was characteristic of him, marshaled and wrote down his thoughts in the form of a treatise. This penetrating, lively work was written in the form of a dialogue among several characters, with the doctor being the spokesman for the author's own views. 
Later, Smith was to repeat the dialogue form in his book Dialogue on the Queen's Marriage, 1561. The former work was not meant for publication, Smith noting in the tract that it is dangerous to meddle in the king's matters, as indeed it was. The basic thrust of the Discourse on the Commonwealth was an attack on debasement and its consequences in high prices, inflation, and social unrest. Debasement, and not the arbitrary decision of farmers or merchants, is responsible for higher prices. The principal losers from this policy are people on fixed incomes. The discourse was published after Sir Thomas's death by his nephew William, Included are later passages interpolated by Thomas during the 1570s attributing the Elizabethan inflation of the later 16th century to another factor, the influx of newly mined specie from the Western Hemisphere. It is not known whether Smith was familiar with the similar Navarrus analysis of 1556 or the Baudin analysis of French inflation twelve years later, or whether this was Smith's independent discovery as price inflation moved from Spain northwards into Europe. In 1562, Smith returned to the debasement theme in a lengthy work, still unpublished, The Wages of a Roman Foot Soldier, or A Treatise on the Money of the Romans. This treatise on Roman money and coinage was written in answer to a question posed to him by his friend and colleague Cecil, at this point Queen Elizabeth's principal secretary. Again, Smith returns to his attack on debasement as evidence of the decay of the state and as a cause of excessive prices. In both the discourse and the treatise, Smith took the convenient, if fallacious, position that the king himself is the greatest loser from the high prices caused by debasement. Since debasement adds to the king's revenue immediately and before prices have had a chance to rise, the king, on the contrary, is the prime beneficiary of debasement and other measures of monetary inflation. Smith's discourse is strikingly modern in frankly grounding its social analysis in the individual's drive for his own self-interest. Self-interest, Smith declared, is a natural fact of human life, to be channeled by constructive policy rather than thwarted by repressive legislation. Not that Smith abandons nascent mercantilism for any sort of liberal or laissez-faire outlook. Self-interest is not to be left alone within a property rights framework. It is to be channeled and directed by government to a common goal set by the state. But at least Smith was wise enough to point out that it is better for men to be provoked with lucre towards proper goals than to have governments take this reward from them. In short, government should work in tandem with the powerful incentive provided by individual self-interest. Smith sees that economic incentives are always at work in the market to move economic resources out of less profitable and into more profitable uses, and governments should work with such incentives rather than against them. 
Smith, however, was assuredly a mercantilist, as seen by his desire to foster the manufacture of woolen cloth within England, and his desire to prohibit the export of raw wool to be manufactured abroad. John Hales came from a prominent Kentish family, and was a friend and fellow Tudor official of Smith. Yet his economic and social philosophy was very different. In 1549, for example, the year that Smith's discourse was written, and which included an attack on new taxes on manufactured cloth, Hales was the very person responsible for instituting the tax. Hales also disliked two favorite themes of the discourse, love for the civil law and admiration for sheep farming. Hales, furthermore, far from being indifferent to religion, was a deacon and a dedicated organizer of Bible readings. Most important in any contrast between Hales and the author of the discourse, Hales attributed the high prices not to debasement, but to three very different supply-side factors, scarcity of cattle and poultry, speculation, and excessively high taxes. None of these factors, in truth, can account for any general price increase. Finally, Hales took the old-fashioned moral position of attributing all ills, including high prices, to man's all-pervasive greed. Why greed should have increased rapidly in recent years to account for high prices was, of course, a problem that was not even addressed. Greed and the desire for profit were the great social evils. The only cure for all this, opined Hales, was to purge man of self-love, to remove the self-love that is in many men, to take away the inordinate desire of riches wherewith many be cumbered, to expel and quench the insatiable thirst of ungodly greediness wherewith they be diseased and to replace this diseased self-love by a twin other love of church and state, to make us know and remember that we all be but members of one body, mystical of our Savior Christ, and of the body of the realm. Again, in his defense, written the same year as the discourse, John Hales expressly denies that self-love can be in any sense the foundation of the public good. It may not be lawful for every man to use his own as he listeth, but every man must use that he hath to the most benefit of his country. There must be something devised to quench the insatiable thirst of greediness of men. Covetousness must be weeded out by the roots, for it is the destruction of all good things." Sir Thomas Smith was responsible, rather than his associate Sir Thomas Gresham, circa 1519-1579, for the first expression of Gresham's Law in England. Until recently it had been thought that the well-known and anonymous Memorandum for the Understanding of the Exchange had been submitted by Gresham to Queen Elizabeth early in her reign in 1559. It now turns out, however, that the memorandum was written by Smith, early in Queen Mary's reign, in 1554. The memorandum was certainly not a free-market tract, 
advocating, as it did, various state controls over the foreign exchange market. It did, however, not only denounce debasement and call for a high-valued currency, but it also enunciated Gresham's law that the cause of a shortage of gold coin in England was the legal undervaluation of gold. Gresham, fiscal agent of the Crown in Antwerp, himself adhered to Gresham's law, which was set forth by the Royal Commission of 1560 that he heavily influenced. Gresham was also a full-fledged statist and architect of Tudor monopoly privilege. A member of the monopoly wool-cloth export company, the Merchant Adventurers, Gresham was the chief architect of England's tightening of that monopoly during the 1550s and 1560s, banning Hanseatic merchants from exporting English cloth, increasing tariffs on foreign cloth, and, finally, making the adventurers far more oligarchic and tightly controlled from the top. Influenced greatly by the memorandum, and echoing its Gresham's Law position, was the younger Sir Richard Martin, 1534-1617, goldsmith, warden, and master of the mint during all of Queen Elizabeth's reign. Trained as a goldsmith from youth, Martin also served as prime warden of the Worshipful Company of Goldsmiths, alderman of London for many years, and was twice Lord Mayor. In the Royal Commission of 1576 on Currency and the Exchanges, whose members were hand-picked by Sir Thomas Smith, then Principal Secretary to the Queen, Gresham and Martin, as well as Cecil, were all included. The Commission did not include Smith himself, who had fallen ill. Their backing of Gresham's law was echoed a generation later by the Royal Commission of 1600, on which Martin served, and prepared the Principal Memoranda. 3. THE ECONOMIC LIBERALISM OF SIR EDWARD COOK It used to be held that the famous anti-monopoly common law decisions of Chief Justice Sir Edward Cook, 1552-1634, the eminent early 17th century jurist, were an expression of the alleged commitment of a rising class of Puritan merchants to economic liberalism and laissez-faire. A particularly prominent advocate of this thesis is the prolific English Marxist historian Christopher Hill, who needs this view to fit into the Marxian schema of the English Civil War. It turns out, however, that there are many grave flaws in this thesis. Cook himself was a moderate Anglican and not particularly concerned with religious issues. He was also not in any sense a merchant or a spokesman for merchants. He was a country gentleman from Norfolk, who successively married two heiresses and spent most of his career as a government lawyer, successively attorney general and chief justice. Also, Cook showed no interest whatever in the new juristic concerns of merchants, such new branches of the law as joint stock ownership, insurance bankruptcy, negotiable instruments, and commercial contracts. More important, Cook never displayed any sympathy for laissez-faire. As a member of Parliament, Cook supported many mercantilist measures. 
Furthermore, he had imbibed from his close associate, William Cecil, Lord Burghley, an admiration for the elaborate Tudor structure of state controls. His approach to foreign trade was profoundly mercantilist. Thus, in the 1621 session of Parliament, after he had broken with the crown, Cook deplored the economic effects of the alleged scarcity of coin. He attacked the unfavorable balance of trade, deplored the fact that the East India Company was allowed to export bullion, and attacked the import trade with France as introducing into England immoral luxury items, such as wines and lace and such-like trifles. Cook also called for outlawing the importation of tobacco from Spain. Cook also tried his best to cripple the new practice of exporting unfinished cloth to the continent and then re-importing the finished cloth. He consistently advocated prohibiting the importation of foreign cloths, as well as the export of unfinished cloth, and also tried to outlaw the export of raw wool to be used by foreign manufacturers. In general, Sir Edward Cook had no quarrel with government regulation and control of trade, or with the creation of monopolies. What he objected to was the king doing the regulating or monopolizing rather than parliament. Cook favored the detailed regulation and cartelization of industry, the wage controls and compulsory employment imposed by the Statute of Artificers of 1563. He supported the laws against forestalling and engrossing, which, under the guise of attacks on monopoly and high prices, were actually price-raising and cartelizing devices prohibiting speculation in food products and prohibiting sales outside officially designated local markets. Laws against forestalling were lobbied for by privileged owners of local markets trying to exclude competitors and to raise their own prices. Most important, Cook's well-known opposition to government-granted monopolies was merely an opposition to grants by the king rather than to grants by parliament. Thus, in the famous Statute of Monopolies passed in 1623 and drafted largely by Cook, Parliament abolished royal grants of monopoly privilege, but explicitly reserved to itself the right to grant such privileges, which it soon proceeded to do. The statute also specifically exempted from abolition large categories of royal monopoly, including such industries as printing, gunpowder, and saltpeter, the rights of corporations such as London to prevent non-Londoners from engaging in trade within the city limits, or monopoly corporations engaged in foreign trade. Furthermore, Cook personally favored the monopoly Russia, Virginia, and East India companies. Cook's legal economic philosophy might be summed up in a phrase he used in Parliament in 1621, that no commodity can be banished but by act of Parliament. 4. The Bullionist Attack on Foreign Exchange and on the East India Trade 
Having survived the assaults of ignorant moralists before the Reformation, the foreign exchange market was subjected during the far more secular age of the late 16th century onwards to the assaults of regulators on behalf of the nation-state. Writers who have been misnamed bullionists adopted the ignorant view that an outflow of gold or silver bullion abroad was iniquitous, and that this calamity was brought about by the machinations of evil foreign exchange dealers, who deliberately sought gain by depreciating the value of the nation's currency. Nowhere was there any insight that the outflow of bullion might have been performing an economic function, or was the result of underlying supply and demand forces. Despite their insights into Gresham's law and debasement, Thomas Smith and Gresham would have to be placed in the bullionist category. The policy conclusion of the bullionists was all too simple. The state should outlaw the export of bullion and should severely regulate or even nationalize the foreign exchange market. The exchange dealers battled back with sensible and powerful arguments. Thus, in 1576, they argued in a protest against the state control of exchange business that state intervention would cause a drying up of commerce. On the low value of the English pound, they replied that we can say nothing but that our exchanges are made with a mutual consent between merchant and merchant, and that abundance of the deliveries or of the takers make the exchange rise and fall. One prominent bullionist of the early 17th century was Thomas Mills, circa 1550 to circa 1627. In a series of tracts from 1601 to 1611, Mills advances the old bullionist position. Foreign exchange transactions, Mills opined, were evil. They were institutions with which private merchants and bankers, covetous persons whose end is private gain, rule in the place of kings. Something new, however, had been added. For the powerful East India Company had been chartered in 1600 to monopolize all trade with the Far East and the Indies. The East India trade was unique in that Europeans purchased a great deal of valuable muslins and spices, but the Indies in turn bought very little from Europe except gold and silver. European nations, therefore, had an unfavorable balance of trade with the Far East, and the India trade therefore quickly became a favorite target for mercantilist writers. Not only were goods being imported from the East as against few exports, but specie, bullion, seemed to flow eternally eastwards. Mills therefore took up the bullionist cudgels by calling for restriction or prohibition of the Indies trade, and attacking the activities of the East India Company. Mills was also eager to intensify regulations against the merchant adventurers, the governmentally privileged monopoly for the export of woolen cloth to the Netherlands. Instead, he craved a return to the old privileged raw wool export monopoly of the merchant staple. In fact, Mills went so far as to call the old regulated staple trade the first step towards heaven.
It is certainly likely that Mill's eagerness to regulate and prohibit foreign trade and bullion flows was connected with his own occupation as customs official. The more regulation, the more work and power for Thomas Mills. Stung to the quick, the secretary of the Merchant Adventurers, John Wheeler, circa 1553 to 1611, replied to Mill's charges in his Treatise of Commerce in 1601. Wheeler upheld the orderly competition of the 3,500 merchant members joined together in the privileged monopoly as against the unorganized, dispersed, straggling, and promiscuous trade of free competition. He also engaged in semantic trickery by asserting that monopoly by definition means only single seller. Hundreds of merchants linked together into a privileged export company were able, after all, to act virtually as one privileged firm. In Wheeler's own words, these merchants were united and held together by their good government and by their politic and merchant-like orders backed up, we must not forget, by the armed might of the state. Sneering at the idea of free competition, Wheeler smugly opined that any merchant who loses a little liberty will be better off being restrained in that estate than if he were left to his own greedy appetite. When John Cale, over a decade later in The Trade's Increase, 1615, protested that the monopoly of the merchant adventurers would unjustly keep others out forever, his pamphlet was suppressed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he earned a stint in jail for his pains. Later, in the 1650s, Thomas Violet had a Mills-type motive for special pleading in his call for prohibition of the export of bullion. Violet had been a professional searcher and government informer seeking out violations of the law prohibiting the export of bullion. Now, in A True Discovery to the Commons of England, 1651, he sought to reinstate that good old law, and he accompanied his call for reinstatement of bullion prohibition with a request that he himself be employed once again to seek out violators. To the embarrassing fact that he, Violet, had himself been convicted and punished for violating these very provisions, he countered with a ready quip, An old deer-stealer is the best keeper of a park. The most distinguished bullionist of the early 17th century was Gerard de Malines, died 1641. Malines was a Fleming born in Antwerp to the prominent Van Mechelen family, probably changing his name to Malines when he emigrated to London in the 1580s, perhaps in response to the Spanish persecution of Protestants in the Netherlands in that era. Malines was listed as an alien in the records of that period and as a member of the Dutch Protestant Church. He is also depicted in the records as a merchant stranger, that is, as a merchant from abroad. Malines turned out to be a speculator and an unscrupulous, even crooked, businessman, embezzling money from his Dutch business associates. He was often on the verge of bankruptcy, and his partner and father-in-law, the Antwerp-born Willem Vermeiden, died in debtor's prison. 
Moline, nonetheless, was a linguist and highly educated scholar, deeply interested in literature, the Latin language, mathematics, and classical Greek philosophy. He was also well-versed in scholastic doctrine. A member of a royal commission of 1600 to study economic problems, Moline began his bullionist writings in 1601, in particular a treatise on the canker of England's commonwealth, and published many tracts on into the 1620s. Like Gresham and the 16th century bullionists, Moline fulminated against the foreign exchange dealers, asserting superficially and incorrectly that exchange rates were set by willful conspiracies of exchange dealers. Moline was more rigorous than previous bullionists. Instead of institutions to control exchange dealings, he advocated a government bank which would enjoy a monopoly on all foreign exchange transactions. Intertwined with his star-crossed business career was Moline's service in government, becoming at various times a top bureaucrat at the Royal Mint and a financial advisor to the Crown. Moline also had a personal stake in the revival of rigorous exchange control, for he himself eagerly anticipated filling the resurrected post of royal exchanger. To Moline, there was a just exchange rate at the legal par, and the government's task was to enforce it. In an earlier tract in 1601, St. George for England allegorically described, Moline, harking back to an old theme, denounced foreign exchange dealings as usury, and expressed the hope that by tight control this usury could die a gradual death. To advocate rigorous exchange control, Moline, of course, had to deny that the foreign exchange market could in any way equilibrate or regulate itself or that exchange rates were set by supply and demand forces. To Moline goes the dubious credit for the emergence of the spurious and pernicious terms of trade fallacy. This doctrine argues that a balance of trade deficit and export of bullion will not regulate itself. For higher foreign exchange rates and cheaper domestic currency will not, as one might believe, spur exports and retard imports. Instead, the unfavorable terms of trade of, say, the pound in terms of foreign currency will lead to even more imports and fewer exports, thus driving more bullion out of the country. Even if a cheaper pound will bring in less foreign exchange revenue, a highly unlikely event seen more often in armchair speculation than in practice, one wonders where the English would continue to find either foreign currency or specie to pay for the higher-priced foreign products. Surely the specie would eventually run out, and for that reason alone, some market mechanism would have to come into play to restrict foreign imports or the export of specie. Thus Moline managed to take the absurd position that whatever happens in the foreign exchange market, specie will keep flowing out of England. Flowing out if the pound should be expensive, since this will restrict exports and encourage imports, a correct insight, 
but also flowing out if the reverse happens because of the terms of trade argument. The specie outflow was therefore blamed on the metaphysical malevolence of the exchange dealers, and it could only be cured by severe government control, including prohibition of the export of bullion. Moline also advocated control of the exchange rate at the legal mint par, which would mean, in the context of the time, a substantial appreciation or higher value of the pound sterling. Yet, continuing in the faulty terms-of-trade mode, Moline saw no problem of specie outflow from such a marked appreciation of the currency. In fact, he hailed the higher domestic prices that would supposedly draw more specie into the country. In a similar bizarre twist, Moline, correctly noting that the inflationary influx of specie from the New World had hit the other countries of Western Europe before coming into England, yet concluded this was a terrible event for England. For instead of realizing that lower prices made English goods more competitive abroad, Moline concluded that these unfavorable terms of trade put England into a poor competitive position and led to a permanent outflow of specie. In view of his record in propounding tissues of egregious fallacies, it is curious that Moline has had a good press among historians of economic thought, even among those who disagree with his basic outlook. They seem to laud him for recognizing that prices vary directly with the quantity of money, so that a country losing gold will find its prices falling, whereas a country accumulating gold will see its prices rise. But Moline, eager to indict the workings of international prices and exchanges rather than explain how they work, was scarcely willing to develop the full implication of his occasional insights. Furthermore, considering that this quantity theory had long been known and developed and integrated for centuries by the Spanish scholastics, Baudin, and others, Moline's achievements seem dubious at best. 5. The East India Apologists Strike Back England suffered a severe recession in the early 1620s, and Gerard Moline returned to the attack, publishing a series of tracts repeating his well-known views and calling for stringent measures to curb the merchant adventurers and especially the East India Company, as well as any other traders who dared to export bullion from the kingdom. His influence was bolstered by having been a member of the Royal Commission on the Exchanges in 1621. Taking up the torch in defense of the merchant adventurers was one of its members, Edward Misseldon, died 1654. In a tract entitled Free Trade or the Means to Make Trade Flourish, 1622, following service on a Privy Council Committee of Inquiry on the Depression of Trade, Misseldon advanced somewhat beyond Moline's analysis. He acknowledged that bullion was exported from England, not due to the machinations of wicked exchange dealers, but from imports exceeding exports, from what would later be called an unfavorable balance of trade. 
Misseldon, then, was not concerned with regulating the exchanges, but he did want the state to force a favorable balance into being by subsidizing exports, restricting or prohibiting imports, and cracking down on the export of bullion. In short, he called for the usual set of mercantilist measures. Misseldon was largely concerned to defend his merchant adventurers. Like Wheeler a generation earlier, he maintained that his company was not at all a monopolist, but simply the organization of orderly and structured competition. Besides, wrote Misseldon, his merchant adventurers exported cloth to Europe and therefore fitted in with the interests of England. The truly evil firm was the privileged East India Company, which had a decidedly unfavorable balance of trade of its own with the Indies, and which continually exported bullion abroad. Misseldon now entered into a series of angry pamphlet debates with Moline, who replied in the same year with the maintenance of free trade. Neither party, of course, had the slightest interest in what would now be called free trade. In 1623, Misseldon accepted a post as deputy governor of the merchant adventurers in Holland, perhaps as a reward for his stirring defense of the company in the public prints. But in addition, the East India Company, seeing in Misseldon an effective champion and a troublesome foe, made him a member and one of their commissioners in Holland during the same year. As a result, when his second pamphlet, The Circle of Commerce, was published in 1623, Misseldon displayed a miraculous change of heart. For the East India Company had been suddenly transformed from villain to hero, Misseldon, quite sensibly, now pointed out that while the East India Company did export specie in exchange for products from the Indies, it can and does re-export these goods in exchange for specie. The outstanding defender of the East India Company in the early 17th century was one of its prominent directors, Sir Thomas Munn, 1571-1641. Munn was early engaged as a merchant in the Mediterranean trade, especially with Italy and the Middle East. In 1615, Munn was elected a director of the East India Company, and after that he spent his life in actively promoting its interests. He entered the lists on behalf of the company in 1621 with his tract, A Discourse of Trade from England unto the East Indies. The following year, he and Misseldon were both members of the Privy Council Committee of Inquiry. Munn's second and major work, England's Treasure by Foreign Trade, or The Balance of Foreign Trade is the Rule of Our Treasure, taking a broader view of the economy, was written about 1630 and published posthumously by Munn's son John in 1664. When published, it carried the stamp of approval of Henry Bennett, Secretary of State in the Restoration Government, and also an architect of England's mercantilist policy against the Dutch. The pamphlet was highly influential, and was reprinted in several editions, the last being published in 1986. Thomas Munn set forth what would become the standard mercantilist line. 
He pointed out that there was nothing particularly evil about the East India Company trade. The company imported valuable drugs, spices, dyes, and cloth from the Indies, and it re-exported most of these products to other countries. Overall, in fact, the company had actually imported more specie than it had exported. In any case, the focus of English policy should not be on the specific trade of one company or with one country, but on the overall or general balance of trade. There it must make sure that the country exports more than it purchases from abroad, thereby also increasing the wealth of the nation. As Munn succinctly put it at the beginning of England's treasure, the ordinary means to increase our wealth and treasure is by foreign trade, wherein we must ever observe this rule, to sell more to strangers yearly than we consume of theirs in value. To that end, Munn advocated sumptuary laws banning consumption of imported goods, protective tariffs and subsidies and directives to consume domestic manufactures. Munn, on the other hand, opposed any direct restrictions on the export of bullion, such as conducted by the East India Company. Munn was wise enough in combating the fallacies of Moline and Misseldon. Against Moline, he pointed out that the movements of the exchange rate reflect not the manipulations of bankers and dealers, but the supply and demand of currencies. That which causes an under- or overvaluing of monies by exchange is the plenty or scarcity thereof. Misseldon had advocated debasement of the currency as a means of increasing the price level. Such increase, Misseldon had argued in pre-Keynesian fashion, will be abundantly recompensed unto all in the plenty of money and quickening of trade in every man's hand. As a leader of the merchant adventurers, Misseldon was undoubtedly highly interested in the spur that debasement would give to exports. But Munn denounced debasement first as bringing confusion by changing the measure of value, and second by increasing prices all around. If the common measure be changed, our lands, leases, wares both foreign and domestic must alter in proportion. Neither did Munn bend his energies towards an export surplus because he was enamored of the idea of accumulating specie in England. Adhering to the quantity theory of money, Munn realized that such accumulation would simply drive prices up, which would not only be to no avail, but would discourage exports. Munn wanted to accumulate specie not for its own sake, not to drive up prices at home, but to drive trade, to increase foreign trade still further. An expansion of foreign trade per se seems to be Thomas Munn's main objective, and this overriding goal is not very puzzling from a leader of the great East India Company. Furthermore, foreign trade, for Thomas Munn fully as much as for Montaigne, increased the national power, as well as the power of English traders, at the expense of other nations. England and her inhabitants only wax great at the expense of foreigners. 
As Munn put it succinctly, in trade, one man's necessity becomes another man's opportunity, and one man's loss is another man's gain. In an odd prefigurement of the Keynesian view that national debt held at home is immaterial because we only owe it to ourselves, Munn and his fellow mercantilists considered internal trade unimportant because there we only transfer wealth among ourselves. The export balance in foreign trade then becomes of crucial importance, so that the export merchant becomes by far the most productive occupation in the economy. That Munn was far from being a primitive inflationist is seen by the scorn he properly and contemptuously heaped upon the common plea and favorite mercantilist complaint that business and the economy were suffering from a scarcity of money. The conclusion invariably drawn from such analysis is that the government was duty-bound to do something quickly to augment the money stock. Munn wittily reposted in his Discourse of Trade, Concerning the evil or want of silver, I think it hath been and is a general disease of all nations, and so will continue until the end of the world. For poor and rich complain they never have enough. But it seems that the malady is grown mortal here with us, and therefore it cries out for remedy. Well, I hope it is but imagination maketh us sick, when all our parts be sound and strong. Thomas Munn may have been the most prominent and sophisticated of the early seventeenth-century mercantilists in England. Yet, as Schumpeter points out, these were all pamphleteers, not particularly interested in analysis of the economy, special pleaders, rather than aspiring scientists. Perhaps the best economic analyst of all in this period was Rice Vaughan, whose A Discourse of Coin and Coinage, though published in 1675, was written in the mid-1620s. Vaughan, in the first place, held that the disappearance of silver during this period was the effect of what we now call Gresham's Law, the bimetallic undervaluation by the English government of silver as against gold. Since silver, rather than gold, was the money for most transactions, this undervaluation had a certain deflationary effect. In the course of his tract, Vaughan pointed out that an export surplus will not have the desired effect of bringing precious metals into the kingdom if the value of the gold or silver pound in England is low in terms of purchasing power for then goods will be imported instead of the monetary metals, and the export surplus will disappear. Vaughan was also astute enough to recognize that prices do not all move together when the value of money changes, for example, that domestic prices usually lag behind the debasement or devaluation of money standards. Most importantly, Rice Vaughan remarkably harked back to the scholastic continental subjective utility and scarcity tradition in the determination of the values and prices of goods. Vaughan concisely pointed out that the value of a good is dependent on its subjective utility, and hence demand by consumers. 
Use and delight, or the opinion of them, are the true causes why all things have a value and price set upon them. While the actual price is determined by the interaction of this subjective utility with the relative scarcity of the good, the proportion of that value and price is wholly governed by rarity and abundance.